Joshua chapter 1. You know, we live in a world that places high value on success. A lot of emphasis on success. Being successful in the world. However, worldly success doesn't satisfy. And we see that so many times in the scriptures that it emphasizes that worldly success just doesn't meet the need. It doesn't satisfy. And people are out there striving and striving and striving to get more and to gain more and to be more. And it doesn't satisfy. And as we've been looking at this series on biblical worldview of various topics, this morning we're going to start, look at the biblical worldview of success. What does the Bible actually say about success? You know, we know what the world is promoting. But what's the Bible say about all that? And it's important for us in all that we do in life to go back to the Bible and say, I want to know what God said that will help me. I want God's word to guide me. And so as we begin this morning, I want us, first of all, to just kind of do a little bit of an overview of the secular worldview of success, just to get us on the direction of where we're staying away from, basically. We ask our quite a very important question right at the start. Who determines whether you are successful or not? Who determines that? Well, in our world today, a lot of times it's yourself. You know, you, 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 um, your, your pride, your greed, your glory. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strive to be successful. I'm going to be something in this life. I'm going to make something in my name, and everybody's going to know who I am by the time I'm done. You know, and then that's a lot of people's thoughts. Maybe your friends. You know, to impress people. You think of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and the prodigal son got all this inheritance from his parents, and and what did he do? He ran off and squandered it with his friends. And when his money ran out, so did his friends. Because they weren't genuine friends. But his friends were trying to get him to do things. And so some friends sometimes lead us into what we, you know, what they would say, this is success or this isn't success. It may be parents. Some parents have a high standard for their children and say, we want you to be a doctor. We want you to be a lawyer. We want you to be famous. And come on, come on, kid. You've got to study, 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 work, work, work. You've got to be something important when you grow up. And, and they push, push, push like that. And, and the child feels under pressure to perform and to succeed. And anytime they fail, sometimes parents are rough on their children and they say, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. And they're always cutting them down. You never, and the child grows up feeling like, no matter how hard I try, I can't please dad. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be what he wants me to be or what mom wants him to be. And so there's a frustration there. Success. Maybe it's your neighbors, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Neighbors got a new car. I guess it's about time for us to get a new car. You know, the neighbors, you know, they just built a big addition to their house. You know, maybe we should think about that, too. You know, got to keep up with everybody else. That may be a sign of success in your thoughts. Peers, peers have a big push towards success. You know, to to have the approval of your peers. Teenagers really struggle with this. You know, they, what does the peers do? Just yesterday, we were, uh, I, I, I drove past a bus stop, and there was two young children out there. I, I don't know how old they were. They might have been 12 to 14, and passing a cigarette back and forth to each other. And I thought, how sad. They don't really want to do that. Why are they doing that? Peer pressure. Got to be what my friends want me to be. And I won't be cool if I don't do what they do, so I got to do what they do. And so there's... 
pressure today. And, you know, we say, well, that's not very successful. But in their eyes, you know, if I'm going to succeed, if I'm going to be what everybody wants me to be, I'm going to have to do what they do. So there's a peer pressure. Maybe it's the boss. You know, the boss, boss is the one that gives the promotions. So I'm going to have to perform, work hard so that I can get a promotion and get a, get a better job and get, get a little bit more and make a little bit more money. And so there's that, that, that push toward promotions. And, and you finally get all these promotions saying, now I'm successful. But it doesn't satisfy. Then there's others who seek the approval of fans. Now, the fans might be sports fans. You know, all these sports heroes, they, they, they prance around like they're gods when they do a, you know, they kick a goal or something, and, and everybody was cheering and clapping and all, and they feel, ah, that's me, I'm the greatest. And they get that thrill out of that, and they feel satisfaction in them. But yet, you know, when their career ends, then what happens? So many of them just, they've got all this money that they've accumulated from their, from their sports things and then they end up spending it all on wasteful things or alcohol and drugs and their life is a disaster. So the standard of success in the world is not a very pretty standard. And yet all of us that grew up in this world, we are, we are pressured by some of these things we've talked about. Maybe several of them. Maybe not knowingly, but deep down inside, we have to admit, yeah, that those are pressures that I've had to face. So what are the world's goals? What are they really after? Riches, wealth, property, prosperity. They're chasing after all these things. Maybe it's to be the best. You know, what drives a person to go, go to the Olympics? I mean, a, an Olympic swimmer doesn't just wake up one morning and say, you know, I can, I'm a pretty good swimmer. I can swim across the pool twice. I think maybe I should go for the Olympics. No, they have poured their life into it for days and days and weeks and months and years, learning to swim faster and better and do it better. Why? Because they want a gold one day at the Olympics. And then when they get that, what's that helped them? Well, they got their name in the book. And they're famous. But they're soon forgotten. It doesn't really pay. Maybe it's to reach the top. I want to be a CEO someday. I want, I, want to, I want to be somebody really important. So they strive and they push and they go for that. Promotions, climbing the ladder, accomplishments, honor. Maybe it's educational honor. I want to have all these degrees. I am Dr. So-and-so with all these, all these letters behind my name. Or I have, you know, titles that I can go by. Could be fame, recognition, praise. You know, we, we all must face it. We, we like to be praised. I mean, if you had a choice between somebody saying, you know, you, you look really rotten today. Or if they said, hey, I like that shirt you got on. That's nice. We'd all take the praise. I mean, we're not silly. We like the praise, but yet sometimes our lives can become addicted to that, where that's what we live for. Prestige. Why do people buy fancy cars? Maybe they just like driving fancy cars, but a lot of times it's, look at me, I'm cool. Look at my car. Whew. 
I got a nice one, or it's a new home, or maybe the latest clothing. I remember years and years ago in one of our youth activities, probably 15, 20 years ago now, uh, a boy came to me and says, how do you like my sweatshirt? I said, yeah, it's a sweatshirt. He said, oh, this is a cool sweatshirt. I said, what makes this a cool sweatshirt? He says, see that name? <laughs> I said, yeah, what's that mean? He said, that's a cool name. You know, you, know, you know, so it had some brand name on it. And so he felt really proud of himself because he had this name brand sweatshirt. Well, it didn't mean anything to me. It was just a shirt. All right? But it meant something to him. Maybe it's to surpass, surpass, sorry, couldn't get the word out, surpass an opponent. Success. I just got to get better than Joe at work, you know. I mean, he, he, he always thinks he's better than me, and I'm going to show him I can be better than him. So that's success. I, I, I proved myself. I got a position better than him. I, I'm making more money than him. I, I'm, I'm, I've got a better car. I'm better than Joe now. I'm, I'm good. Maybe it's winning a prize. Got to get that prize. I want, what, I want that. Whatever it is. Could be anything. But you know, typically, the worldly goal for success is this. Just a little more. Just a little more. How much money do you need? Just a little more. Yeah, but you got billions. But just a little more. Just a little more. And that's, the, that's what drives people in the worldly success. Now, they may not be after the billions, but they may be after the nicer car and nicer house. Just a little bit more than what I got. I'm not happy with that. I just want a little bit more, and I'll be satisfied. I'll be successful. The world's success is often a frustration to them. And I want you to turn with me now to the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I got you started in Joshua, and I'll be back in Joshua in a minute. I'm sorry, I led you astray. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the middle of your Bibles, you find Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Psalms is pretty easy to find. So Ecclesiastes, written by uh, Solomon, the third king of Israel, one of the richest men who have ever lived. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and notice what he says here, beginning with verse number 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning with verse number 4. He said, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. And I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and made servants and, uh, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle of all, uh, all that were in Jerusalem before me, gathered, I gathered me also silver and gold and the, and the peculiar treasures of kings of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the, and the delights of the sons of men and the musical instruments and, uh, and that of all sorts. And I, uh, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever my heart desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the portion of my labors. Solomon said, I had it all. I had anything and everything I wanted. He had, in our day and age, he had billions. I mean, they talk about the piles of gold that they would bring to him every year. He was rich, 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 rich. And he could buy anything he wanted and do any, anything he wanted. And he did. 
But notice how he responds in verse 11. Then I looked at all the works of my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. He said, here, living under the sun on this earth, there's no profit in all that. I had it all. And he said, there was no profit in it. I was not satisfied. That did not make me happy. And, and you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes it's a confusing book. But basically, Solomon is telling us in this book, he says, I have tried it all, I've done it all, I had it all, and none of it satisfies if you leave God out of the picture. You can't leave God out. If you leave God out, it won't satisfy if you put God at the center of your life, you can be satisfied. Whether you got lots or whether you got little, you can be satisfied. And that's the gist of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Now flip over back to Psalms. Psalm 49. Psalm 49. Back toward the beginning of your Bible bit. Psalm 49. Take a look at verse number 16. Psalm 49, verse 16. Be thou not afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. So what is the psalmist telling us here? He's giving us a sober warning. He's, he says, be not afraid. I don't think he's, the word afraid there is a word that can mean scared, but it also refers to being, standing in awe or revering. And I think that's the idea that he's using here. He says, do not stand in awe when one is made rich. For when he dies, it's, he should, all that he's accumulated he's going to leave behind. So we shouldn't say, whoa, wouldn't that be awesome to be rich like that man? He says, don't do that. Because when he dies, he's going to leave every single bit of it behind. He's not going to take any of it with him. So he's saying, that's not what we live for. If you live for money, you're going to leave it all behind. You live for treasures, you live for house, you live for property. All that you have, near the most wealthy man who's ever lived on this earth, when he died, he left it all behind. Couldn't take any of it with him. And so... The psalmist is reminding us of this truth. And there's a couple other verses in the Bible that do the same thing on that. Then over in the New Testament, Jesus spoke about a rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. All right. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 12. And look at verse number 16. Luke, Luke chapter 12 and verse number 16. Jesus is speaking here and teaching and he says in verse number 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room for where, with to, uh, to, where to bestow my fruits. And he said, I will, This will I, will I will do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build bigger or greater. And uh, there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say unto my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be that which thou hast provided? So, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, Jesus himself was saying, you can accumulate all these things in this life, but if you're not rich toward God, you've lost it all. You've got nothing. Because, see, folks, listen, every one of us, every person who's ever been born has been born with an eternal being. And we're going to live somewhere forever. 
And this life is just the dressing room for eternity. It's just a little time for getting ready for eternity. It's the time for making a major decision. Where will I spend eternity? Will I spend eternity with God in heaven? Or will I spend eternity separated from God in hell? It's only two options. And this life, that those short little years between the birth and the death, is a time for deciding that. It's the time for deciding, what am I going to do with God? Am I going to have God in the center of my life, or am I going to leave God out of my life? And if you leave God out of your life, then you spend an eternity with God out of your life. If you bring God into your life and invite him to save your soul and forgive your sin and give you eternal life, because that's why he came to this earth and died to pay the debt for our sin, then you can have eternal life with him. The choice is up to you. And Jesus was emphasizing this. Worldly success often leads to personal failures. Neglect of quality time with the Lord is probably number one. Even Christians that focus on materialism instead of on God, the first thing to go is their time with God. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to go to church and you know all that stuff. I, I just don't have time. Once in a while, I'll pop in for a visit. But that, I don't have time. And they leave God out of their life, and they're leaving out the most important thing that they could possibly do. Another thing that happens is marriage becomes stress, often ending in divorce, losing the very most cherished things that they can hang on to in this life. That, that, that goes out the window too, because I'm too busy. And I come home, and there's so much stress, and, 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 and then we argue and fight, and, and she doesn't understand, and I don't understand her, and then we can't get along, and I'll forget it. We'll go our own ways. And the family blows apart, and the kids, they're left on their own. There's no time to mentor the children. No time to give them one-on-one training and education and understanding and guidance. You know, children need more than just somebody that pays the bills. They need someone there to care for them and teach them and train them and show them and help them. I'm so grateful to have grown up on a farm. I'm so grateful that my father taught me so many things. Today I'm able to do little bits of a lot of things. I can't do much of anything very good, but I can do a lot of a little, little bits of a lot of things. Because Dad taught me how to fix things and how to do things and how to build things and how to make things. and all. The, it was very helpful, but there was mentoring. And many homes have no mentoring. They, Dad comes home from work and, and he's busy and he's tired and he'll play on his computer and he'll do his, or he'll sit and watch television and the kids are all off playing their video games and nobody has any mentoring time. There's no time. Come on, son, I need to teach you how to work on the car or how to fix this or how to mow the lawn or how, you know, I'll hire the lawn to be done. I don't want to mow the lawn and the dad don't want to mow the lawn so they hire it done and so the kid doesn't learn that. And I mean, there's no mentoring. Because it's too busy. Joseph Stowell, um, author of a book, made this comment. He said, one ingredient of success is meaningful time with my children. He says, as, as a friend of mine observed, he says, and I quote, I have yet to hear of anyone who on his deathbed 
wished he had spent more time at the office. And that is so true. Nobody on their deathbed is going to say, oh, I just wish I would have spent more time at work. But there's heaps of them that say, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have spent more time with my wife or my kids. I wish I could do it over again. Success. The worldly success is a pain. It hurts. Even those who so-called succeed struggle and have some of the hardest lives. You see somebody, you know, and people that play the lotto, and I don't think that's the Christian thing to do, but people that play the lotto and they win big. They usually, their life usually is destroyed by that. They win a million dollars and, and then they've suddenly got all kinds of friends they didn't know they had and everybody's wanting a little bit of a handout and, and their life goes from bad to worse and it just wrecks everything most of the time. Success is not a happy thing in this world. But now let's take a look at the biblical worldview of success. The biblical standard for success First of all, who determines what is successful? God. God determines what's successful. God is our creator. He alone has the right to set the standards for success. He made us. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's able to say, this is what I want you to do. And if you do this, you will succeed. And if you don't do that, you're not going to succeed no matter what you do. And God's got the right to do that. He is the creator. Being the creator, he will judge our success or failure. And that's a sober thing for all of us to ponder. One day, we're going to stand before God, and he's going to evaluate, did we succeed or did we fail? And he's not going to use the world standard to do that. He's going to use his standard. He's not going to look at the world standard and say, well, you know, they got lots of money and they've got fame and they got fortune and they got a nice house and a nice car. God's not going to worry about that at all. That means nothing to God. In fact, if it means anything, it's usually negative. Personal opinion or desires won't count. The opinion of our friends and our parents and our neighbors and our peers and our boss and our fans, no value on Judgment Day. When you stand before God on Judgment Day and God's evaluating your life, you're not going to be able to say, yes, but God, my friends thought I was really cool. My neighbors really envied my house. They thought it was great. God's not impressed. It means nothing to him. On Judgment Day, that's not even going to come into account. Because God's got a totally different standard. God's opinion and God's knowledge is all that matters. That's it. What does God think of my life? How does God see my life? That's all that matters. Biblical goals for success. God in his word revealed the following goals for success. And I want us to look at a few of them. Now we can go back where I started you out in Joshua chapter 1. All right, Joshua chapter 1. Sorry, I kind of led you on a wild chase before we got there, but Joshua chapter 1, and look at verse number 8. Now picture in your mind who is being spoken to here. Moses was the most powerful 
probably one of the greatest leaders Israel has ever known. He was a mighty powerful man. You think about the different times and he, that he spoke with God. And God had said, step out of the way, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm so disgusted with those people. And Moses would fall on his face and pray and spare the nation more than once by his prayers. It was Moses' rod that struck the Red Sea and the waters parted and the people walked across on dry land. And it was Moses' rod that touched the waters and the waters came back and destroyed the Egyptian armies. Moses was a powerful man, but Moses died. Joshua was his successor. Can you imagine following Moses? What a, what a big shoes to fit into. And the people basically said, you read through the first part of Joshua here, the people basically said, Joshua, we'll follow you as long as you do what Moses did. <laughs> well, that's a big task. And God writes to Joshua here in verse number 8, and he says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. There is God's standard for success. He said, spend time in the scriptures, meditate on it day and night. Now that doesn't mean that we don't do anything else. Obviously, Joshua did lots of other things. And we're going to have to do lots of other things. But he says, keep it in your heart. Keep it in your mind. Think about that. Instead of thinking about smut, instead of thinking about the filthy music that you, they have playing at work, instead of thinking about the, the garbage that's on television, think about the things of God. He said, let that fill your soul. Think about these things day and night and so that you can do all, and I highlighted that word all in my Bible, all that is written there. God said, I want you to obey the book. And at that time, Joshua only had five. He had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all he had. We've got 66 now. You say, oh, we've got a lot more work. Well, yes, I suppose in a sense, but we've got a lot more information about God, and it helps us in many other ways. And so God says, I want you to just obey the book. Just do what I've said to do. And if you do what i said to do, you will be a success. And so God lays it out for us what he wants from us to follow his word. And God says that is success. Now let's turn over to the New Testament again. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to have you moving all over the Bible today. I told you that earlier. But uh, Matthew chapter 6. And look at verse number 20. Jesus is speaking here. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 20. Actually, I'll start in verse 19 to give the context. He says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So Jesus Christ here, he says, this is what you need to do. You need to lay up treasure in heaven where it's never going to decay. There's never going to be a stock market crash in heaven. And you'll lose everything. It's not going to fall apart. You're not, it's not going to rust. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to decay. It's not going to need another coat of paint. It's, it's, it's always going to be good if you lay it up in heaven. 
And so we have to ask ourselves some important questions. How do I lay up treasure in heaven? How do I do that? And some of what we're going to look at is going to lay out that. How do you do that? But Jesus said, lay up your treasure in heaven. Don't lay up your treasure in the earth. Now, I don't think Jesus was saying, in fact, I'm sure Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't have a, a superannuation or we shouldn't have a bank account and we shouldn't take care of our family. He's not saying don't do the basic things you need to do to survive on this earth. But he's saying if that's what you're counting on, if you're counting on your superannuation to be the thing that's going to keep you together and all is going to be well, God could just like that wipe it out. I mean, you have a major crash in our economy in the world. Everything will just go out the window tomorrow. I mean, everything we got is worthless tomorrow. What's that going to help us? So he says, don't do that. Lay it up in heaven. Next book over, Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, Jesus again speaking here. Mark chapter 8. And look at verse number 34. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what is a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, think about the words of this. It's important things here that I want us to see here. Jesus is talking to, it appears to be talking to believers. Okay, rather than unbelievers. And he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't saying that to an unbelieving Pharisee. He was saying that to those who were following him. And then he says that if you lose your life, you're going to save it. And if you save your life, you're going to lose it. And what's a man going to gain if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does he mean by that? Well, I do not believe he's speaking here. This little phrase, losing your own soul, is a key one we need to focus on. He's not speaking of going to hell because he's talking to believers. When he says lose your own soul... He's talking about losing or wasting one's opportunity to serve and glorify God in this earthly life. It's losing or wasting one's opportunity to serve and glorify God in this earthly life. If you lose your own soul, what is your soul? Your soul, as you study through the scripture, when it talks about the soul, sometimes it's talking about life, but it's, a lot of the times it's talking about something else. Something that's hard to get your hands on. It's talking about that part of us that we can use for God's glory or we can use it for my glory. And he says, if you gain, if you keep it to yourself, you lose what really matters because that's not going to please God. But if you serve God with your soul, then he says you lose your soul, you give it away, and then you gain what God wants. So it's kind of, it seems like a contradiction here, but God says, you give yourself to me and you gain everything. You hold yourself to your, you help keep it all to yourself, you lose everything. So he's urging us to just invest our lives for God's glory. That's success. Now go with me over to Philippians chapter 3. 
further on to the New Testament, Philippians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul here is speaking, Philippians chapter 3. And the Apostle Paul is describing his success before he came to know the Lord. And there's very few people from the world's perspective that had a better success record than Saul of Tarsus. And he goes on to explain and describe his credentials. In verse number 5, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were at the top of the pile. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Nobody had more zeal than Saul. Touching the righteousness of the, uh, which is in the law, blameless. See, as a Pharisee, he was a religious leader at the top of the pile. And the Pharisees were those that were extremely well educated in the Bible. They knew the scriptures very, very, very well. And here's a man who said, I, I am one of those Pharisees and I knew the Bible and I was so zealous for God that I was persecuting the believers and I was killing all the Christians I could get a hold of because I believed that was wrong. I was a very, very zealous Jew. He said, ah, I had a big name. And everybody knew him. He was just a young man. You think about this. Saul was not an old man when he was doing all this. He was a young man. And everybody knew him. You mentioned Saul of Tarsus. Oh, yeah, we know him. He was trained by Gamaliel. Yeah, we know him. He was well known by all the religious leaders. And then Paul goes on, verses 7 and 8, and he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Now when he says that I may win Christ, he wasn't saying, I counted all my credentials as dung or manure so that I could win or gain Christ. I don't think he was saying, I did this in order to, to earn my salvation. He was saying, I want to win Christ's approval. I want to do what Christ wants. I want Christ to be able to say, well done. And he said, in order for me to to glorify Christ, I had to get rid of all of my credentials. He said, they're no better than just dung. All of my Pharisee credentials. I was the greatest of the greatest. And he says, all that's rubbish now. Not important at all that I might win Christ. Christ is going to be the one I'm going to lift up, not me. And he says, if we're going to glorify Christ, we're going to do what is successful in God's eyes, we need to say, life is not about me. Life is about God. Life is about Jesus Christ. It's not about me. I am not important. It's all about Jesus. And that's what Paul said. He says, I I, I gave away my credentials. Not important. God's approval is all that he wanted. And that's what marks true success. Paul goes on to tell us how he pursued that in 1 Corinthians. Back up a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the Apostle Paul here describes to us how he was going to pursue that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 26. 
Actually, 25 I'll start with. He says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word castaway there means disqualified. Paul said, I am beating myself black and blue to keep my flesh under control. He's, and there in Romans chapter 6 and 7, he says, I still struggle with the flesh. He says, the things I know I want to do, I don't do those things. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I can keep on doing. And he says, I'm beating myself black and blue because I do not want to do that. He said, I am going to fight myself to the end because I want to do what's right to please God. I do not want to be disqualified. And he's talking in the context here of an Olympic type of a setting. He said, the athletes go to all effort to be able to keep themselves in fit shape so they can win. And he said, I want to keep myself in spiritually fit shape because I want to win the prize of the glory of God. I want God to be able to say, well done. I want God to be happy with my life. That's all that matters. That is success. That is true success. And so Paul was striving to that end. And as we think about these things, there's many other examples we could look at in scriptures, but for time, we'll leave it with that. But God's counsel for true success. What does God actually give us the counsel for? All right? We've looked at some of the, the examples of this, and now let's just consider this. As we have seen serving and glorifying God with our lives is success in God's eyes. Therefore, based on that, what ought we to do? Number one, we ought to adopt Job's attitude. How did Job face loss in life? Job was a man who was very wealthy. Probably more wealthy than most everybody else that lived in his day. He had a big farm, lots of cattle, lots of animals, ten children. Everything was going well for Job. And on one day, bang, just like that, he lost it all. And Job's response in Job chapter 1, verse 21 is this. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that's not easy. It doesn't matter whether you've got a lot or you've got a little. That's not easy. It's not easy to say, I accept what happened to me without a complaint. God gave, God can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not easy. But what an attitude. If we had that kind of an attitude, it would be a great help to us as we view success. Because we're saying, all that I have is not important. If my house burns down and I lose it all, I'll start over. God will help me through it. It'll be all right. And that's not easy. But that's what we need to strive for. And you say, Pastor, have you succeeded or reached Probably not. <laughs> but I'm striving that way. And we all need to strive to that end. To be able to say, God's will be done. It's all right. I don't need it. 
We need to quash our pride before it trips us. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. The thing that drives worldly success is pride. I've got to be better. I've got to show them I can do it. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to show them, Dad, that I can be successful. I'm going to show the boss that I can get to the top of the ladder. I'm going to... It's all pride. I want to be something special in this life. And we've got to quash that. God says if we don't quash it, pride will destroy us. It will destroy us. Success is about preparing for eternity while we can. One of the saddest chapters in the whole Bible is in Luke chapter 16. And I want to just quickly read a few of those verses to us. Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, we find the story of Jesus that Jesus told of Lazarus and the rich man. It says in verse number 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He was rich. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass when the beggar died that he was the, uh, that, uh, died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice Abraham's response in verse 25. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, lest, uh, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, if they have, if they, sorry, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rose from the dead. What a warning. Is we need to prepare for eternity. This life is not all. This rich man, he had it all, and he ignored God. And the poor beggar, he had nothing. But he did spend his time with God. And he focused on the Lord, and he loved the Lord. And when they died, the beggar went to be with the Lord, and the rich man went to hell. What did he gain? Nothing. He got tormented for the rest, and he's still there today. That's the sad part. And he'll never get out. For all eternity. Because he made the wrong choice and rejected God and chose to please himself instead of glorifying God and trusting God with his life and he spent his eternity in hell. It's not worth it. It is not worth it. And even that rich man in hell, when he saw that he could not get out, what did he do? He cried and said, please, send old beggar Lazarus back, raise him from the dead and send him back to my five brothers and tell them about Jesus. I want, to, I want them to come here. I don't want them to come here, he says. And he says, no, if they won't listen to, you know, if they got Moses and the prophets, what do you mean by that? They, they get the Bible. If they won't listen to the Bible, they're not going to listen if somebody raises from the dead and goes and talks to them. They've got to listen to the Bible. 
So folks, listen, this is, remember way back in Joshua, what did God say? Read the book and follow it. That's the answer. Be successful. Spend time in the book and follow God. That's the answer. And here again, he says, go back to the book. That's what's going to lead you in the right direction. You need to prepare for eternity. If you're here today and have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and he's never washed away your sins and given you eternal life, you're heading the wrong direction. You may get rich in this life, but you're going to lose it all behind. Leave it all behind and spend eternity separated from God if you don't trust him as your Savior. That's the bottom line. And that's what God's begging us to face and to realize. We need to seek to live out Paul's instructions to young Timothy. And I close with this verse in Second Timothy chapter, or First Timothy chapter six and verses ten to twelve. He says, "For the love of money is the root of all evil." He didn't say money was the root of all evil, but the love of money. Want more? Just a little more. The love of money is the root of all evil. While some covet after, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Paul said you need to, Timothy, he says, don't follow their ways. Flee that temptation to follow after money and materialism. Flee it and follow instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And he says, fight the good fight of faith. Serve God with your life. Lay hold on eternal life. He wasn't saying, Timothy, you need to get saved. He's saying, lay hold on eternal life. He's saying, live for eternity. Live for eternity. Don't live for now. He says, lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou hast been called and has professed a good profession of many before many witnesses. He says, you've got a good testimony, but Timothy, live for Jesus. Don't live for now. That will lead to success. As we wrap it up this morning, I want to read a brief quote that is a great challenge to my heart by F.B. Meyer was a great preacher of years gone by, and he knew D.L. Moody. Most, many of us would know who I mean by D.L. Moody. He was a great evangelist. And he asked D.L. Moody, he says, what is the secret of your success? And here's what Moody said. For many years, I have never given an address without the consciousness that the Lord may come before I have finished. I thought, wow, what a statement. And if we apply that to our daily lives, it's like saying, every day I'm not going to make a decision in this life without knowing Jesus could come back before I'm done. Jesus could come back before this day has ended. Jesus could come back before I wake up tomorrow morning. I need to be ready, and I need to be focused. I need to be... My whole life needs to be, I want to please the Lord. That's success. It's not about how much you've got. You may have nothing in your pockets. They may be empty. But if you walk with God and love God, you can be successful. But you may have your pockets so full you can't keep it all in and bulging with billions. But without God, you lost it all. When you die, it's all gone. 
and so are you. It's not worth it. And so, as we think about these things, if if you have to admit that in your heart there's been more secular philosophy than there ought to be, more of that secular worldview than there ought to be, chasing after what impresses and pleases and promotes instead of focusing on my life is about God. That song that we sang and Sean pointed out the words that earlier, the very convicting song. And we ask ourselves, I wonder how many souls I've won to Jesus. I'm so grateful that I'm a minister. I've had a lot of opportunities to preach the gospel. And yet I have a lot more accountability than you do because of my position. But I sure wish there was a whole lot more people that have come to Christ through my preaching and my ministry. And you don't have that opportunity as I do. But as a lay Christian, if you know Christ your Savior, your goal still needs to be, I don't want to meet Jesus without at least winning at least one soul to Christ. I don't want to enter into His presence and say, Lord, I've tried to live for you, but I never led anybody to Jesus. Didn't even really tell many people about Him. We need to make it our passion. Lord, help me to reach somebody for Jesus. To make a difference in somebody's life that will point them to eternity with Christ instead of eternity in hell. That's what success is all about. So folks, you can be successful. You can be of great success in God's eyes if you just stop focusing on the things of this world and say, God, with all of my heart, with all of my passion, I want to please you. And I want to live for you. I'm going to spend time in your word and I'm going to focus on your word and I'm going to make that the center of my life. And Lord, I'm going to do my best to tell others about Jesus so I can see somebody come to Jesus before I die. Make it your goal. You can do it. If you're here today and don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're in big trouble. But the great news is that it's not too late. You're still alive. You still have an opportunity to repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Savior. You can do it. Jesus is waiting. He died on the cross to pay for your sins and He invites you to come to Him and be forgiven and saved. But you've got to make the choice. He's not going to cram it down your throat. He's not going to force you. It's your choice. If you've never done that, you've never received Christ truly deep down in your heart, then you need to seek help today. Speak to someone who can help you today and say, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready. I need to know Jesus.